Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anish Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about the care of patients with melanoma with Dr. Jonathan Leventhal. Dr. Leventhal is an assistant professor of dermatology at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. So, Jonathan, maybe we can start off by you telling us a little bit more about yourself and what it is you do. So, I'm Jonathan, and I lead the uh, Oncodermatology Clinic. So, in this clinic, I take care of patients who develop all types of skin, hair, and nail problems from all types of cancer treatment. And I also perform skin checks for patients who have a history of skin cancer. So, you know, now that we're emerging from the pandemic uh, and the weather is starting to get nicer, many people start thinking more about skin cancer. So can you kind of give us the lay of the land? How common is skin cancer? What are the different types? Um, And what should people be aware of? Absolutely. So skin cancer is actually the most common type of cancer just in general. So there's three main types, basal cell, which is by far the most common of all of them, followed by squamous cell, and then melanoma, which is only about 1% of skin cancers, but is the deadliest. And so basal cells um, can happen in up to 30% of white individuals in their lifetime. So it is so common. It usually presents in sun exposed areas often like a little pimple that just doesn't seem to heal. It can be a little sore or it can bleed and it just persists. Then there's squamous cells, which are the second most common type. And these also occur in areas of sun damage. And they usually present almost like a painful warty bump on the skin. And then finally, melanoma, as I mentioned, which is um, the least common of the three, but has about a, let's say an incidence of about affecting one in 40 individuals in their lifetime. That often looks like an atypical appearing mole. It's usually a pigmented lesion. So, you know, that's one thing that I think a lot of people may not be aware of is that some skin cancers are not pigmented. I think that so often people think about skin cancer and they think melanoma. And when we think melanoma, we think of a pigmented lesion. But basal cells and squamous cells aren't, right? Yes, that is correct. So basal cells, they often look pink and pearly, almost like a pimple. And, and the same is true of squamous cells. They're often pink um, in color and warty in texture. So they don't look like the classic melanoma, which is like an atypical looking dark brown or black lesion, which is asymmetrical. And so I think it's really important to know those differences. And so how can people tell the difference between what could be a normal pimple and what could be a basal cell? Yeah. So normal pimples fortunately heal and they self-resolve within a matter of uh, weeks, whereas basal cells often start as a small lesion and then it becomes larger and it persists over the course of months and months. And so that's really um, the main way. I always tell my patients, if there's something on your skin that just doesn't seem right, doesn't heal, persists, or is painful, definitely, you know, tell me or tell your dermatologist. And so the other thing that you mentioned is that basal cells happen in about 30% of white patients. And so 
When we think about skin cancers in general, is it true that these occur primarily in white patients? And do people who are of other races or ethnicities get skin cancers as well? That's a really great question. And so the short answer is yes, anybody can develop skin cancer. It is true that um, these skin cancers, basal cells, squamous cells, and melanomas uh, particularly occur in, in white individuals who have had a lot of sun damage, but we have seen all these types of skin cancers in various ethnicities. So interestingly, melanoma, which is a really important one to talk about, when it does happen in patients who have skin of color, it can occur in areas that we may not think about for skin cancer. So that includes on the palms and the soles, or even under the toenails. And so there seems to be some sort of predisposition for that with melanoma. And so definitely important to know about. And even with basal cells and squamous cells, I have plenty of patients um, who are Hispanic or African-American and, and they develop these um, skin cancers. So it doesn't only happen in white individuals. Skin cancer can affect everyone. When you think about skin cancer occurring under toenails, um, we've often heard about that. But um, when we look at pictures, so if anybody Googles, uh, you know, melanoma and looks at pictures of of these occurring under the toenail, it kind of looks like somebody stubbed their toe. It looks like they may have a bit of a hematoma under their toenail. How can you tell the difference between stubbing your toe and getting a a hematoma under a toenail versus, you know, a melanoma that you might need to be more concerned about. Yeah, another really good point. And so when dermatologists examine patients, what we look for regarding the fingers and the toes is a dark pigmented streak that extends from the nail fold up throughout the nail. And so that's called melaninichia. So many, many times melanoma actually begins as kind of a melaninichia streak, a dark band under your nail. And so if you see any new dark bands under your nails um, that are different um, than maybe some other um, nail um, findings that you have, you should definitely um, see a dermatologist. Now, regarding the question about trauma, fortunately, only those really advanced cases of melanoma under the nail bed really look like the whole nails coming up and bleeding and bloody. And so those can be um, very concerning. So I would say if you do stub your toe and you have a reason for having a problem under your nail, you can be a little, you, know, you can be reassured. But if you don't recall any trauma and now you see that your nail looks like it might have some bleeding underneath it or some dark discoloration, definitely something to show your doctor. All right. So... We know what to kind of look for in terms of basal cells and melanomas. Squamous cells, you mentioned, they kind of look a little bit more scaly, right? Yes, yeah, squamous cells can appear um, sometimes similar to basal cells. They can be pink and scaly. They can sometimes have a warty texture. And one thing that I find is helpful with squamous cells is these tend to be painful. And so if you have a lesion on your skin and when you touch it, it's painful, that's something that you should definitely tell your doctor and dermatologist about because many times that's how these squamous cells present. They can also grow very rapidly, usually a lot faster than a basal cell. Let's suppose you have one of these lesions. You've listened to this show and you've, you've 
discovered that you might have one of these and you go and you see your family doctor or your dermatologist, what's generally the next step in terms of making that diagnosis and how bad is the treatment? Great question. So once there's a suspicious skin lesion, the way that we diagnose the condition is we perform a skin biopsy. So this is a really simple procedure that takes place in the office. It only takes a few minutes to do. Um, locally, the area is numbed up with a little bit of lidocaine, and then the area is either shaved off or we use something called a, a punch biopsy, and we're able to get um, um, the lesion into a, uh, a bottle that was sent to a pathologist who then looks under the microscope and is able to give us an answer. Well, that's great for lesions that are on the skin, but if you've got one of those melanomas that's on a toenail under the nail, how do you do a biopsy of that? Yeah, so those are a little bit more uh, complicated. And so what's really important about biopsying those lesions is that a, um, a specialist who's familiar with doing it performs it. And so, for instance, if we want to biopsy um, the nail, and in particular, we want to biopsy what's called the nail matrix, which is where most of these um, cells, melanoma cells, form, and then they expand upward into the nail, we sometimes have to, after we numb it up, actually peel back some of the skin and even remove the nail plate itself sometimes. And so those procedures can be a little bit more um, complicated. Yeah, doesn't sound like fun. Okay, <laughs> so, um, so let's suppose a diagnosis is made of a skin cancer. Now, you mentioned at the top of the show that basal cells and squamous cells are incredibly common, but not very lethal. Unlike melanoma, little less common, but far more lethal. So does the treatment vary between these different kinds of cancers as well? Yeah. So fortunately, in most cases of basal cell, squamous cell, and even melanoma, these skin cancers are found relatively early and very easily treated and cured. And so the treatment for basal cells and squamous cells, which we can kind of lump together, is with um, surgical removal. And so usually um, a simple excision is performed for these. If they happen to occur on a more sensitive area, like let's say the face or the hands, the feet or the genitals, then they'll be removed by a technique which is called Mohs surgery. And this is basically very similar to a, um, a simple excision. It's just that a little, a little bit of the skin cancer is removed by a shave at a time. And then the patient waits while the doctor looks under the microscope to make sure they got it all. If there happens to be an area that's remaining, then the doctor will go back to perform additional shave removal of it. Now, melanomas um, are removed as well by surgery. However, the procedure is usually a little bit more entailed because the margins are a little bit greater, meaning the area around the skin cancer is greater to ensure that there are no cells left behind. And if a melanoma is a little bit thicker, then actually a lymph node is obtained at the same time of the excision, and that's called a sentinel lymph node removal. And that's done usually by a general or a plastic surgeon. So now, wait a minute. When you were talking about the basal cells and the squamous cells, and you were talking about more sensitive areas, you mentioned that these could happen on the genitals. So some of our listeners might be very curious about that, thinking, how does somebody get a cancer in that part of the skin. We thought that most skin cancers are due to sun exposure. Was that, do those occur only in people who go skinny dipping or what's the deal with that? 
<laughs> so that's a really good question. So in general, yes, like any cancer, there's environmental and genetic and other components that go into it. So for most cases, they do happen in areas that are sun exposed. But for instance, squamous cells, um, there's some um, risk after getting an HPV infection. And so some patients can develop genital lesions of squamous cell carcinoma. And while not and while most skin cancers do happen in areas that are sun exposed, there are, for some reasons, some that do develop in areas that have been um, protected from the sun. And these might occur due to other genetic reasons. And sometimes we don't fully understand why these happen, but they can. So that's what makes a total body skin exam particularly important for patients who are at high risk. Hmm. Interesting. And so... You know, when you were talking about the squamous cell carcinomas in particular, you did mention that they can look wart-like. And so is the pathway to getting squamous cell carcinomas and genital warts similar in the sense that they're both caused by HPV? So in some ways, yes, but not all squamous cells are um, due to that. And so with HPV viral infection, our body's immune system is often able to help um, to help clear those infections. But with squamous cell carcinomas, it's a bit more complicated because it can involve HPV, but can also involve other changes in the DNA of the skin called mutations that happen from sun damage. Hmm. Well. We're going to need to take a short break for a medical minute, but please stay tuned to learn more about melanoma and skin cancers with my guest, Dr. Jonathan Leventhal. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers comes from Smilo Cancer Hospital, where the bladder cancer team is at the forefront of bladder cancer treatment and research. Learn more at YaleCancerCenter.org. The American Cancer Society estimates that more than 65,000 Americans will be diagnosed with head and neck cancer this year, making up about 4% of all cancers diagnosed. When detected early, however, head and neck cancers are easily treated and highly curable. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center and at Smilo Cancer Hospital, to test innovative new treatments for head and neck cancers. Yale Cancer Center was recently awarded grants from the National Institutes of Health to fund the Yale Head and Neck Cancer Specialized Program of Research Excellence, or SPORE, to address critical barriers to treatment of head and neck squamous cell carcinoma due to resistance to immune, DNA damaging, and targeted therapy. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org you're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Jonathan Leventhal. We're here learning about the care of patients with melanomas and skin cancer in honor of Melanoma and Skin Cancer Awareness Month. Now, right before the break, Jonathan, you were mentioning that some squamous cell carcinomas, not all, but some, can occur in the genital area and may be related to HPV. So I have one follow-up question to that, which is, you know, here on Yale Cancer Answers, we've talked a lot about the HPV vaccine and its benefit in terms of preventing all kinds of different cancers, cervical cancer, anal cancer, head and neck cancers. Does it reduce your risk of squamous cell carcinomas as well? So not in the sense 
of the squamous cell carcinomas that happen from ultraviolet damage, um, which is a large chunk. The way to prevent those is to avoid the sun and use sun protective measures, which I'm sure we'll discuss. But in a sense, reducing HPV-related squamous cell carcinomas that tend to occur in the genitals, yes. Well, let's segue into how we can reduce our risk of ultraviolet uh, rays and how much that really reduces our risk of cancer. So when I talk to my patients about protecting themselves in the sun, especially those that are really high risk, I mean, obviously, we have to be able to go outside and enjoy ourselves. And so I think that um, just using a little bit of common sense goes a very long way. So first of all, when you're outside for a long period of time, wearing a hat and sunglasses is really easy and something that's really important. You know, seeking shade rather than lying out and tanning, also something that's just an easy one. But if you're going to be outside, then we have, you know, protective measures with sunscreen. And there's two main types of sunscreens. There's physical blockers, which often look like those white, pasty zinc or titanium dioxide, and those block the sun rays. And then there's the chemical blockers. Those are the ones that kind of rub in a little bit more nicely. And those basically absorb the ultraviolet rays before they damage the skin. So absolutely, using sunscreen, um, either type, with an SPF that's usually, you know, dermatologists like to say 30 or higher, um, is very protective. It helps prevent sunburns, which we know dramatically increase the risk of all the major skin cancers and, and really have been shown in studies to reduce the risk as well. So let me ask you this. If you're going to use sunscreen, do you have to wear like long sleeves and long pants and sit in the shade? Or is the sunscreen sufficient to block the sun rays? So the best thing that works the best is obviously avoiding direct sun exposure. And so if you are going to be in the shade wearing sun protective clothing with long sleeve and pants, you know, you don't need to have sunscreen underneath it. You really want to apply sunscreen to the areas that are uncovered. But most of the time, people want to be outside and enjoy themselves and, you know, including myself. And so for me, you know, putting a hat, sunglasses and sunscreen on anywhere that's exposed, like my arms, if I'm wearing a T-shirt, my neck, not forgetting my ears, um, really important. Something else that a lot of my patients seem to tell me is that they put on sunscreen, but yet they still get burned. And so when I talk to them a little bit more, it turns out that maybe they applied it in the morning, but then they were playing basketball or tennis or were out playing golf all day and they never reapplied it. So after several hours, you really need to reapply the sunscreen, especially if you're going to be sweating or, you know, jumping into the pool and coming out. The sunscreen will not work all day long. How do we get the sunscreen underneath those nail beds if melanoma can occur under your nail? So that's a good question. So the nails and, you know, the fingers, you know, you want to apply sunscreen to the skin itself. Regarding the, the nail beds, the, those types of melanomas likely are not solely driven by the sun rays and ultraviolet, you know, especially in patients with darker skin types, there seems to be more of genetic um, risk factors at play there. And so I don't think people need to drive themselves um, a little crazy by applying sunscreen under, you know, under and around their, their nails. I think really the focus should be on, on exposed areas of the skin. Next question. We have hair on the top of our heads, some more than others. Um, <laughs> so if you aren't bald, uh, do you still need to wear a hat? So the answer is yes. Even in patients who have 
a lot of hair, you still can find sun damage, precancers, and skin cancers develop. And so the ultraviolet rays can still um, cause skin damage, especially in the areas of the midline part or in patients who maybe have some thinning, others may be a little bit more bald, um, you can certainly get um, skin cancers there. That's actually a really common place for um, men to develop skin cancers, and that's on areas of a thin hair scalp. Okay, let's suppose there are some men who are listening who may be bald, but they don't particularly enjoy wearing a hat. Could they just use sunscreen on the top of their head instead of wearing a hat, just like you would on your arms and legs if you didn't want to wear long sleeves and long pants? Sure. So hat is clearly more protective. But if someone does not wish to wear a hat, then absolutely. Applying sunscreen onto the, the scalp is um, is very um, helpful. And, you know, there's really different types of sunscreen, too. Some are lotions that seem to rub in better. Some are um, creams. Others are actually sprays, which some people actually prefer if they have thinning on the hair. They just spray on some sunscreen. So there's really different types. And what I tell patients is find a type that works best for you. Don't just ask, well, what's the best one? You know, you want a sunscreen that blocks both ultraviolet A and ultraviolet B. And most of the sunscreens on the shelf do that now. And you want a sunscreen that you actually like and use. So the spray is a cool idea for those of us who really don't enjoy wearing hats. Could we just spray over our hair? Does that work? Would that prevent skin cancer? And would it wreck our hair? <laughs> so I don't want to be blamed for some wrecked hairstyles, but here's what I would say. Um, the hat's the best. If someone is balding and there's a lot of exposed skin, then yeah, I think spraying it's a really good idea. I don't think that you just want to go spraying sunscreen throughout your, your hair because that's not going to be particularly helpful. You really want to get it on exposed skin. And so for all those men out there who don't like to wear a hat, but do have a bald scalp or hair thinning, Absolutely protecting it with sunscreen um, is very important and will reduce sunburns, will reduce ultraviolet damage to your skin, and will therefore reduce you getting skin cancer. Okay. Then the next thing you said was sunglasses. So is there a particular type of sunglasses that you should be wearing or are dark shades good enough or how does that kind of work? Yeah, so you actually can develop a melanoma in, in the eye. And while there's many different genetic and environmental risk factors that, um, that are important there, um, getting ultraviolet damage is clearly one of them. And so I just tell patients to find a pair of sunglasses, especially those that have UV protection, which many of the nicer brands do. Um, and that's, that's something that's important. In addition to the eyes, another area that's sometimes forgotten um, are the lips. And so I do tell patients also to don't forget about applying sunscreen to the lips. And so there actually are um, special um, lip balms that have sunscreen in them, which patients can buy. That's interesting. I didn't know that. Um, what about getting back to the glasses part? Um, okay, fine. You can wear shades when you're not in the pool. But if you're jumping into a pool or a lake, let me tell you, um, swimming with glasses on is a little bit tricky. So what do you do then? So if you are not going to wear sunglasses, then, you know, applying sunscreen to your face. And again, 
you know, you can totally go in the pool with a really nice hat. And, you know, if you're worried about it getting wet, um, you can, you know, you can totally um, take it off, apply sunscreen and then reapply it. But I told my patients, we have to do the best we can. You want to protect your skin. We have so many different strategies that we can use sunscreen, hats, sun protective clothes. And a lot of my patients, once they develop a skin cancer, they're, they're saying to themselves, well, that's it. I don't want any more. And so when they go in the pool, you better believe it. They have a hat on, they have sun protective clothing on, they look like scuba divers. And, and I think that's great. So, you know, in terms of really protecting yourself, there are now some clothing brands that claim to have UV protection or their kind of sun repellent uh, clothing. Um, they're a little bit hard to find, but they are available. Is that worth it or is that just over the top? So I would never say it's over the top if somebody's really worried about, you know, let's say they have had skin cancers, they really don't want to get any more skin cancer. And so clothing that has UPF, ultraviolet protective factor, those are great. And you can order those online. You can find them at, at many different stores. But in general, if you're wearing clothing, you're wearing a hat, if you're wearing, you know, um, long sleeve shirt and pants, that tends to be um, a very good strategy to protect, your, to, to protect your skin from UV damage. Now, the other thing, while people are getting ready to hit the beach uh, this summer, some people try to get kind of a head start on tanning by visiting their local tanning salon. Okay or not okay? Definitely not okay. So for some reason, a lot of my patients would tell me that before going on a vacation, they would get a head start, they would get a baseline tan. So we absolutely know that, especially for young women who seem to do this more than young men, that using tanning beds significantly increases your risk of getting melanoma. And so absolutely no no to tanning beds. If you want your skin to look tan, there's no harm in using an artificial tanner. You just don't want to look like Ross from Friends when he was all orange like a carrot, but there's no harm at all from using an artificial tanner. Okay. So um, so we've gotten some tips now on kind of how to protect ourselves and, and protect ourselves from the sun. And we know what to look for in terms of um, melanoma, squamous cell, and basal cell cancers. But in terms of skin cancer, you, you also mentioned that there are things that are a little bit outside of our control. So genetic factors and so on and so forth. How do we know how much baseline risk we have from the things that we can't control? That's a really great question. And so some of the genetic factors include our, the type of skin, hair and nails, um, and eye color that we have. So for instance, patients that have very white skin, lots of freckles, light hair, like blonde or red hair, light eyes, um, those are patients that we know have a far greater risk of burning and these are also the patients that have a far greater risk of getting skin cancer. If a patient has many moles on their body, we also know that having over 100 moles and atypical appearing moles can increase your risk for developing melanoma. So those are some of the things that we really can't control. In addition, we also know that genetics um, is important here as well. So if we have a strong genetic history of others who have skin cancer, that could also increase your risk. Great. 
One last question. You did mention that one of the things uh, that we should be thinking about is getting regular skin checks. So how do we know whether we should get a skin check, who we should go and see about that, and how often that should be done? Advice? Yes. So in general, not everybody needs to get a skin check. Get a skin check, a total body skin check by a board certified dermatologist. If you're somebody who has a personal or family history of skin cancer, if you think that you're someone who has these genetic or um, phenotypic risks of developing skin cancer, and um, if you have something on your skin that you're concerned about, definitely see a dermatologist. Dr. Jonathan Leventhal is an assistant professor of dermatology at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital.